Welcome to the New Books Network. Will Wales ever become an independent country? The UK's other constituent parts, Scotland and Northern Ireland, both seem more likely to break away. Uh, The Scots did vote no to independence in 2016, but it was by quite a narrow margin, 55-45, And next time, who knows? In Northern Ireland, Catholics are for the first time becoming a majority, and with some Protestants favouring being in the EU rather than the UK, a referendum there could lead to Irish unity. But what about the Welsh? Well, polls suggest support for independence in Wales is quite low, 20s to 30, well short of the 50% needed, but... The trend is upward. English journalist but Welsh by feeling journalist uh, Will Hayward has written a book asking, should Wales leave the UK? So welcome to you. Thank you for having me. And I I just want to start right at the beginning, by which I mean sort of the 1200s, because one of the key things about Welsh politics, and, and you make the point in the book, is that Wales was conquered by England. And that makes a difference. Scotland wasn't. Wales was. T- t- tell us what happened back in the 1270s and 80s and so on. The, the key thing is that Scotland entered the Union voluntarily. Now, people argue that actually Scottish nobles entered voluntarily, but ultimately, uh, Scotland, there was a choice to join the Union. Wales was conquered. We were brought into an essentially a, a part of England until the 1950s. Um, official documents didn't say England and Wales. It just said England. There's a very famous line in the Encyclopedia Britannica where under the the Wales section, it just said, for Wales, see England. And this had a real effect on the Welsh psyche. Whereas Scotland, although it's a small country, has never had an issue seeing itself as a, a, a big nation on the international circuit. Wales, by contrast, has always had to justify its own existence. In, in Scotland, nationalists would state build. They'd build the instruments of state. Whereas in Wales nationalists would nation build they'd be trying to safeguard the language they'd be trying to justify wales as a thing justifying its own existence and i think that's probably best seen in um, the song that's sung by welsh football fans uh which literally translates as we are still here and that has really permeated through the, the welsh sense of themselves um there's a real underdog mentality in a, 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 a a feeling of just having to demonstrate that they actually do exist, that we are here. The, actually, the next line of that song is Igwefia Paupa Popef, which is in spite of everyone and everything, which I think is <laughs> which is a pretty uh, pretty strong line. Yeah, and, and just for people who are not familiar with, with uh, well, I'm afraid, with Wales, uh, let, let me just ask you, how many people in Wales, how does that compare with England, Scotland, and, and how many speak Welsh? There are just over 3 million people in Wales. Uh, We make up about 5% of the UK. England makes up about just over 85%. And I think uh, in terms of Welsh speaking, the Welsh government has the aim for a million Welsh speakers. I, I don't have the figures from the census to hand, but there's been a decline in some of the heartlands. Part of that is due to uh, migration from other parts of the UK. But there is been a, a growth in the number of people who are trying to learn Welsh. Welsh has become, become cool again. I think for, to really understand Wales and Welsh independence and its place in the UK, I, the best figure to think about is that 50% of people in Wales live within 25 miles of England. It's not like Scotland, where there is a very spacious border. In Wales, um, Wales uh, it's highly integrated of England, both in terms of people and also infrastructure. 
Yeah, and just I mean, just to give an idea on the language, it's, it's like all when, whenever it comes to these nationalist issues, they're they're always contested. But something like twenty percent of people in Wales speak Welsh. Yeah, depending on if you're defining it as conversational Welsh, speaking Welsh every day, you can understand Welsh. It depends on the metric, but that's a, that's the typical figure that's used. Yeah. Yeah. Now then, just going back to that initial conquering of Wales, what form did that take? It was basically an English king who had a military conquest and and it it, it took a long time right there was resistance from Welsh leaders yeah I I think it's always good to think about the fact that Wales wasn't a single entity for for most of its history there was no kind of here is the whole of Wales a lot of especially South Wales areas that are now part of Wales like Monmouthshire got quite complicated history but um edward uh, edward longshanks the um who also called hammer of the scots conquered essentially wales um they were, we had a, a prince of wales but that title was then adopted almost in mockery of wales and actually is still used by the um the heir to the throne so uh, it was quite a, a, a contentious issue in wales when charles declared his son william the new prince of wales there was a feeling that there's been no welsh consultation and this harked back all the way back to this conquest that things were being done to wales without the permission of wales and that that's still a, a, an idea which in certain areas of welsh society is very strong today so can you say then that uh, when wales was conquered or at least these welsh leaders like uh, owen glendower and others were conquered by the english did Wales exist, actually? I mean, can you say there is a Welsh history going back to before the time of English domination? I mean, Wales as a nation, it, absolutely. There's a strong argument that it's the oldest identity on these islands. It, it, it predates um, the Anglo-Saxons. Um, it's a real paradox of um, Welsh identity that Welsh is simultaneously the oldest identity on the island that we uh, islands that we all live on but also one of the most fragile despite its its age and it still almost feels like and this is what i come speak to about in the book is that wales still is working out what it wants to be when it grows up to fight the fact of how old it is and i think that is something that does harken back to this idea of it being conquered overtaken the last um welsh um prince uh, removed yeah and just 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 to be sort of hit home that point you're making about Welsh predating the Anglo-Saxon period. I mean, Welsh was spoken much more widely in Britain, right, before it was pushed to the periphery in a way by the arrival of all these people who, you know, from the Vikings and others who came into England. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, I mean, e- even until um, in the 1800s, Welsh was really prominently spoken in areas of Herefordshire. In England, um, yeah. Yeah, in England, yeah, which is... which is uh, Now people living in England would find that... that, that, that really strange concept but we're talking in the last kind of 150 years it was it's been a a, some would say and i think there's some sympathy this a a, almost a a deliberately imposed decline on welshness which has only really recovered in the last kind of 15 years i'm english by birth um and i've got english friends who've moved to cardiff and they've deliberately moved to an area where they can get their child into a welsh-speaking school now we'll go back 30 years and People who were first language Welsh would deliberately not raise their kids to speak Welsh because they felt it would hold them back. And that that is totally transformed now. So there has been, especially in, since devolution, so that was powers coming from Westminster and Wales having more control of its own affairs. Since then, there has been a real growth in this, uh, almost an explosion of Welsh identity and this feeling that Welsh is is cool again. Well, it's partly a nationalist feeling, but we'll get on to this sort of thing. But it's also mm. positive discrimination, isn't it? Because there are lots of jobs now, which uh, in the public sector particularly, but also increasingly in the private sector, where you can't get the job unless you are speaking Welsh or commit to learning it. Well, uh, yeah, and I think um, 
some some people don't see that as necessarily a, a positive. I mean, personally, I think if if you have a bilingual society, that's um, that's that's absolutely fair. It was actually um, one of the reasons why Quebec in Canada, which is similar to Wales in a way, it's a, a minority language in a larger country. They almost voted to leave to secede from Canada, but changes that were made like and accommodations that were made to safeguard that identity um, have actually mani- massively reduced demands for Quebec independence. And a part of that is that wherever you are in Canada, you can be tried in French if you appear, appear before a court. So I, I think there has been, people might say, positive discrimination. But what Welsh nationalists might say is that it's simply a fairness. It's, it's actually just it's just having a um, a political system and a civil society which reflects the realities of a lot of the people who live here. If we just uh, discuss one more point in the history, it, it, you made the, the, the point that uh, England basically treated Wales as part of England. And, and then that stopped in the 1880s, didn't it? I mean, it was surprisingly <laughs> late that what Wales started getting treated differently. Can you just talk us through what happened at that time? So the 1880s was the first time since the Act of Union, hundreds and hundreds of years before, that um, 300 years before, that England and Wales differed in terms of laws. And it was a uh, law which was known as Dry Sundays. So the Welsh, very pious people that they were, wanted a law which prevented people from drinking on a Sunday, because um, it's the Lord's Day, um, uh, so they said. And this meant that you couldn't buy alcohol in alehouses, pubs on, on that day. But what this actually led to was uh, lots of the border towns. There's actually a, um, a pub which straddles the border and people would just drink on the English side of the bar and go to the toilet on the Welsh side. But that, So that was the first time that Wales had diverged from, from England in terms of laws. However, that wasn't the, the kind of opening of a flood of difference. I mean, Wales didn't even get a Secretary of State until the 1960s. Just to Scotland, explain that, that would be a Minister for Wales in the British government. Yes, so they would sit around the cabinet table with the prime minister, with the chancellor, and their role would be, ideally, the role has changed somewhat, as the voice of Wales in cabinet. Now, Scotland had had this for hundreds of years. It had been abolished, it had come back, but they'd had some form of representation for hundreds of years. Wales only got a Secretary of State in the 1960s, which is a theme throughout the book of Wales has consistently been treated uh, differently to Scotland within the Union. And that has driven calls for devolution, which is more powers being coming to Wales. So uh, going back to your question, the, nine, the 1880s was the first time that Wales differed. But we, you almost have to go forward another 100 years, another century before you see any realistic divergence in policy in the two countries. Yeah, and that happened because of Tony Blair and because of devolution when the Welsh got their own parliament with limited powers, but nonetheless with some powers. Yes. So in 1999, Wales voted by a very, very narrow margin to have, uh, it wasn't even a parliament then, it was a, um, it was known as the uh, Assembly, the Welsh Assembly. But that, during the pandemic actually, changed to be known as the Welsh Parliament or the Senedd, as it is in Welsh. And that controls huge areas of Welsh policy. So education, health, uh, huge policy areas are now under the control of the Welsh government. Now, in the book, we explore some of the issues around this and how that funding works. But it's um, that vote to have more powers in Wales, though very narrow, has now people in Wales have tasted having control of their own affairs. And in the main, not all of them, but in the main, the majority like it. And there was another vote for increased powers in 2000. 
11, which had a much larger majority. And in the last Senate election, anti-devolution parties, so parties opposed to the Welsh Parliament, were completely wiped out. What sort, so, of, what sort of percentage do they get now? They're probably about kind of four or five percent um, before um, you had, um, I think off the top of my head, it was five or six UKIP MSs. That it might be a bit, bit more than that. So that um, would be sort of English nationalist representatives in the Welsh Parliament? Yes. So they, well, they would argue that they were, they were British nationalists. Right. But yeah, absolutely. And uh, some of them split, as those parties often do. And they formed a party called the Abolish the Assembly Party. And that party was expecting to win a lot of seats in that election, but actually it was completely wiped out in the end. Yeah. Now then, uh, when it comes to this question, which we began with, of uh, the possibility of Welsh independence, uh, for many people it comes down to the numbers and uh, or obviously are these national uh, identity issues, we can talk more about them later, but just let's deal with the economics of it now. The argument of many who oppose independence is that Wales can't afford it and there would be a very significant drop in the standard of living of people living in Wales if uh, if it went to, if it made its own way now one one of the difficulties in in settling that argument is that the numbers are uh, are not really available to to produce a conclusive answer but so can you talk us through the difficulties of getting decent numbers on this there's a lot of challenges the first is that a lot of figures are simply england and wales figures so wales figures are just absorbed into the wider england and wales numbers the other issue is it it really does, whether Wales can afford it, and uh, there's 10 chapters in the book, and one of them is called Can We Afford It? And it makes up a third of the book, which is shows how seismic this uh, this question is. So much of it is completely dependent on what happens after independence and what the plan for an independent Wales is. Let's take the example of, let's talk about pensions and debt. So with pensions, when Scotland had its referendum on independence, they said that they would take the pensions of every Scot- every person living in Scotland. So whether they were born in England, Wales, wherever, if they were in Scotland, the Scottish government would take their, their pensions on. Paying their state pension, you mean? Yeah, paying their state pensions. Now, there's no, when you pay your national insurance, there's there's no, it doesn't go into a pension pot, it just goes into the Treasury's budget, which is then allocated out. There is no pension pot to divide, it is. So what the Scottish government said, we'll take all the, um, all the pensions, but this meant that any people who were living abroad would be still paid by the remaining UK government. And that includes Scottish people who live abroad. And there was an argument, well, this isn't entirely fair. Now, what the Plaid Cymru, who are the Nationalist Party in Wales, the main Nationalist Party, said in a recent report was that actually, if you build up a pension with the UK government, if you were to move to Australia, the UK government would keep paying your pension. So the fact that Wales goes independent your pension is still owed by the UK government. So actually, Wales wouldn't have to pay pensions initially until more people pass retirement age. Now, there's a, several issues with this. Um, the first is the matter of fairness. That is doesn't seem, frankly, to be fair. But there's also, you would then have a situation where an independent country would have all of its pensioners paid by another country, which is a very odd, if you want independence to stand on your own two feet and to more equally distribute wealth around your nation, the fact that all your most vulnerable people will have their pensions paid by another parliament is a very odd thing. The reason I go into that is to show the the sheer complexity of this issue. How would you divide it? Would you say that more people in most lots of people in England retire to Wales? So should Wales take on those pensioners? It's a very, it's a very complicated thing. And the, the book, the aim of the book isn't to tell you what to think about Welsh independence, it's to give you the tools 
to form your own opinion and to form your own informed view about whether Welsh independence is a feasible option. And I, I think people, different people would come to different conclusions having read the same book. And because it depends on your attitude to risk, where you live in Wales, your identity, all sorts of things. Right. But let, let, let's just, I mean, I, I can see that how you divvy up the pensions is a you know, highly contentious issue, which would have to be resolved. And of course, England would have to agree to pay all the Welsh pensions, which it, it presumably wouldn't do. But but just in terms of the numbers, I mean, one of the most striking figures in your book is that you talk about fiscal deficit per head, which, you know, is, is something that obviously makes sense. And in the UK, the average fiscal deficit uh, per head is £622. That's getting up towards $1,000. In in Wales, it's £4,300, so getting beyond $5,000. I mean, it is an enormous difference. Uh, I mean, first of all, how come the Welsh are, uh, are you know, taking so much more of public expenditure than other people in Britain? Well, interestingly, it's, it's not so much the Welsh are taking more of public expenditure it's more actually that they're not earning as much, creating as much wealth in tax. So Scotland and Wales are, are different. Scotland spends like it's Norway, but earns like it's the UK. <laughs> Whereas Wales spends like it's the UK, but earns like it's Portugal. So actually, Scots enjoy a, a more spending on public services. Wales actually doesn't, it, it gets more than, than, per, than England gets. But it, because we've got so few higher rate taxpayers in terms of income tax, Wales simply doesn't generate the amount of money. Now, you can explore whether a different tax regime in Wales would raise more money. On that question about the numbers, the way that the budgets are divided, essentially it takes every UK government budget and it gives Wales 5% of it. That's what it says an independent Wales would spend. So it takes the defence budget and it says an independent Wales would have liabilities of 5% of this. But the issues with that are the fact that, for instance, lots of uh, defence spending in uh, the, the UK spends, although if Wales has 5% of it, 5% of the money isn't spent in Wales. A lot of it is on contracts outside of Wales. So it's very hard to differentiate how this money would then translate into an independent Welsh state, which is a really hard thing to do. So more often than not in the book, you're actually saying, well, we don't know this, but neither do the nationalists who are trying to sell this and neither do the unionists who are saying this is insane. There is a lot of complexity there. Um, if uh, hope answers. No, I, I mean, that, that, that's right. I mean, the numbers just aren't there to, 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 to settle this. But, but what you're saying is that the Welsh economy... Is, sub, yeah, is, is not producing a standard of living that people have come to get used to, right? I mean, if, if, if Wales broke away, there would be a significant drop in the standard of living. In terms of GDP, I don't think anybody can look at the current figures and say that Wales will be better off in those terms. Every credible version of Welsh independence or person advocating Welsh independence that I've spoken to have actually said, well, there will be fewer new iPhones in an independent Wales. There will be fewer two-car households. But it would be an opportunity, perhaps, if you stopped measuring thing, your uh, success on GDP, and success you, instead you're going to say, well, you're going to be going on holiday to Bala in North Wales instead of Barcelona, but you also might have a four-day week and you might have the care of your loved ones paid for in later life. That would, how it would be offset. You might have a happier country um, is the best way for them to sell it. I think if you make the sell for Welsh independence in purely GDP terms, it is a very, very hard sell um, at this point. It doesn't mean there aren't 
ways in which you could move Wales to a position where it would be more feasible for it to be independent if you if you value GDP. But that really should be the aim of everyone, whether you want Welsh independence or not, is to create a more affluent and um, better off Wales. Yeah, sure. I mean, did you did you in your mind? I mean, I, I, we, we keep saying the figures are imprecise, but you know, Brexit. It's reckoned cost the UK a four percent hit to GDP, and that's just in in, in loss of trade. Uh, presumably, there'd be a much bigger hit on the Welsh economy if uh, you know it's far more integrated into the British economy than Britain was into Europe. So there'd be a, you know, a massive hit to GDP there, and and then the problem of just um, you know the, 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 the lack of productivity of the, of the Welsh economy. I mean, did you did you come up with any number in your mind of just how much poorer Wales would be if it were independent? You can you can come up with I mean that number that we spoke about before the uh, the four thousand pounds is is you know it's a rough it's a rough estimate but everything will everything will change based on what you're going to do with things like currency uh, it, it, how how you how you manage that I mean Wales would be would be significantly poorer but if you were then were to say well actually we're not going to spend money on x y and z because that wouldn't be thing like for instance people often point to the military and we're going to put impose tariffs on these particular resources you know immediately everything gets skewed if you're if you're looking at in purely monetary terms i I think like we talk about uh, initially an independent wales would have to would have to borrow but the nature of that borrowing would depend on the currency i'm happy to go into a chat yeah. about currency well just before we do currency which is important let's just deal with a couple of the things you've raised as arguments often used by those who support independence uh, saying that they could charge for water because there are big political issues in wales about welsh reservoir water being used in england and secondly they could they could not spend so much on defense you'd know, have no interest in being a nuclear power would probably have a very very small uh, military force. So are those two arguments on water and defence convincing arguments for saying that the cost of independence would not be so high? I think water in particular is an interesting one. So water, as you say, a very emotive issue. It's not just that water from Welsh reservoirs goes to areas of England. It's also that predominantly Welsh-speaking communities in the past have been flooded in order to create these reservoirs. So that, that's been a historical, quite significant issue. The Welsh independence movement, well, large elements of it love water and they love talking about electricity because Wales is a net exporter of both. It produces far more than it uses. And the argument is, well, we would bankroll an independent Wales on the back of this. The numbers simply don't add up when it comes to that. The areas of England that need the most water are in the southeast. Water is very expensive to transport. The figures from the Wales Governance Centre, which is part of Cardiff University, essentially worked out that to make any meaningful money from water, it would actually be cheaper for England to just take the salt out of seawater, which if England considered it an issue of national security, it likely would do it. It it becomes even harder to argue about electricity because electricity with the UK is becoming so much more connected with the continent in terms of electricity. So it it just isn't feasible that Wales would be able to sell a significant markup these resources but wales has had an economy based on exporting its natural resources before and it led to a million people moving out of wales and decades of poverty Uh, it's the the credible views of an independent wales aren't in my view selling stuff that's under our feet it's about empowering and educating and training the people who walk above those resources in my view And, and what about the defense issue Plaid Cymru, the Nationalist Party, have long had a pacifist strand running through them. I 
don't think there's any credible any credibility whatsoever in the idea that an independent Wales wouldn't have a military. That is that is just bizarre. I mean, small countries have a v- bigger vested interest than large countries in preserving the international order. That's the reason why the Scandinavian countries, for instance, are uh, always very keen to send troops to peacekeeping missions and stuff like that, because it's about maintaining stability internationally. And most versions of an independent Wales I hear pitched talk about an internationalist Wales, which is engaged and part of the international community. So you'd very likely want to be a member of NATO, um, for example. And to do that, you will need an armed force. I think there is a strong argument an independent Wales could spend a lot less proportionally on its military and still have a functional military that works for it. But there's no way that you are going to be able to balance the books of an independent Wales on simply cuts to defence spending. Okay, and 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 then you you, you mentioned currency. Now, in, when the Scottish referendum took place a few years ago, 2016, yeah, the Scottish nationalists had pretty much all their arguments lined up, and and they you know they 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 increased their support during the campaign. But the the one issue that they never had an answer to, it was so fundamental, and it really did undermine their campaign was what currency will this new Scotland have and you know it is such a fundamental question not to have resolved and yet in Wales that's also true because you know it's not clear Wales could join the euro Uh, it's not clear nationalists would want to keep the pound and it's not clear they could have an independent currency very quickly anyway so is there an answer to that question? (laughs) Um, On the pound the issue is, if you decide to keep the pound, the good thing is you then use the same currency as your biggest export market. However, it does mean you have no control over macroeconomic levers. You cannot set interest rates. You can't print your own money. Uh, you, you essentially go through all the palaver and upheaval of independence to not have fundamental controls that an independent country would want to have. So I don't think that is. I don't think that's credible. The other issue is the euro. I think. I think that also doesn't work, especially in the short term, for a lot of the same reasons. So ultimately, you've got an independent Wales, which will be initially in a significant budget deficit. So you really need to have your own currency. So you then have to ask, are we going to peg this currency to another currency? So you might say it has to be between 75 pence and 85 pence sterling, and you've got to keep that peg. But to do that, you need a central bank who is going to back that um, currency. And there'll be a lot of speculators wanting to break that peg. Or you can float. You can float your currency and it values at the price that the market decides. Now, bear in mind the amount of people who work on one side of the border with England and live on the other side, whether going from England to Wales or Wales to England. If you had a significantly different currency on, uh, on both sides of that, one of which was fluctuating, it would be very hard to get, for instance, a doctor who lived on the Wirral, which is in England, to cross the border into Denbyshire to work if you're going to be paying them in very low value Welsh punts. It's hugely challenging. Now, what the Welsh independent side and what Scotland have actually said previously is, well, we'll we'll keep the pound initially for a bit and then we'll adopt our own currency. But actually, we saw when Czechoslovakia broke up, they said that. They said, we'll have a a single kroner, and then after three years, we'll have a Czech kroner and a Slovak kroner. Problem was, everyone knew that as soon as they split, the Czech kroner was going to soar and the Slovak kroner was going to plummet. So everyone in Slovakia tried to move their money over to the Czech Republic before that split happened. So they had to put in currency controls. It became a real, real 
uh, problem. And uh, everyone in the Czech Republic was desperately trying not to pay off their debts to Slovak people because they knew that their money would be worth a lot more in a few months. So it's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly hard. And unless the independent side have a credible answer to this question, it will be I think, not only impossible for them to win any kind of referendum. Well, again, it gets back to the same thing. You could, you could have a Welsh currency, but it, it's just going to mean a significant drop in the standard of living, right? I mean, you can do it, obviously. Well, and Welsh nationalists would argue is Wales is the poorest part of the UK. We've got 600,000 children here, 200,000 of which live in poverty. A third of them live in poverty. And this has been the case for the entire time Wales has been in the Union, and it's not going to get better and they would say that there's it would be taking a short-term hit in order to have control over these issues to try and make things better longer term that would be what they would they would argue the way the uk is currently constituted i don't think you can argue that things in wales are going to improve uh, markedly i don't think in 20 years time if we continue as we are wales is going to be anything other than still the poorest part of the uk so i think there's Strong, strong sympathy in lots of corners of Wales for the fact that the current situation isn't working. But I think fewer people have come round at this point to the argument that independence is the answer to that. Yeah. And, and, and just let's go through the European Union issue now, because that, that's a, a, a reason that many people support Welsh independence is that uh, just like those Protestants I mentioned at the beginning in Northern Ireland, you know, they prefer being in the European Union than the United Kingdom. And it gives them much, uh, yeah, there are lots of lots of reasons for that. But there is uncertainty as to whether Wales or indeed Scotland could join the European Union, uh, not least because uh, the Spanish will not want to create a precedent for their own minorities like the Basques and Catalans and so on, uh, Basque country, and you know it is it, and can veto this. So, so there is no guarantee that Wales can join the European Union. I mean, do you think in the end it could, or how uncertain is that? Well, I, th- I think in the end it, it could, but even if we put aside issues which you've just raised, which I don't think are small issues, like, for instance, um, uh, Spain not wanting to set precedents, if we put aside the fact that if your argument for Welsh independence is that decisions in Wales need to be made as close as possible to Wales and you're annoyed that Wales has such little representation in the House of Commons, but you want to give power to the EU where you will have five members of the European Parliament. Put aside all of that. If your aim for Welsh independence is because you see it as a vehicle for EU membership, I think you're flawed just in terms of the timescales. Especially after 2016, there was an explosion of support for Welsh independence. And a lot of it was because people saw it as a way of getting their EU citizenship back. But if we talk about timeframes, so Realistically, for a referendum or on independence to happen, Plaid Cymru would have to win a majority. They've indicated that they would have an indicative referendum in their first term and a confirmation re- referendum in their second term. The next election is in 2026. So say Plaid won that, which is looking very unlikely. If they had the indicative referendum and then in 2031, they won again, you add another referendum to confirm it. So let's say it's 20, 2033, which is, I mean, these are crazy ambitious timescales. You then would have to have a period where there's negotiation. We saw how long it took for the UK to leave the EU after the vote. It is an argument that the Welsh one should take 10 years or more. But say it took five years, which is still, again, incredibly ambitious, or in 2038. (laughs) The idea that the first thing an independent Wales would do is join the EU, I think is stretches credulity massively, because firstly, you need to have a referendum in Wales about whether you want to do that. So 
even if we say two years after Wales is independent, you look for EU membership. So what's that, 2040? Even then, you've got a, Wales has then been out of the EU for 20, over 20 years and would ha, would likely differ in lots of ways in terms of regulatory frameworks. So say that took another five years. All of these are just obscenely ambitious timescales. You're then in 2045. So if you are looking at Welsh independence based on the fact you want EU membership, you are looking to do something incredibly hard in order to achieve something you're not going to achieve for almost 25 years. And if you look at what the EU was 25 years ago, there was only 15 members and it was completely different. So you would be wanting an independent Wales in order to join an organisation which as yet doesn't really exist in that form. It it just doesn't work for me in terms of the practicalities. It doesn't mean it couldn't work. It doesn't mean that wanting to join the EU isn't a perfectly reasonable goal. And it doesn't mean that Wales couldn't play a role in Europe if it was independence. But I think if your main motivator is for an independent Wales to join the EU, I think you're uh, misguided. Yeah. One of the issues you raise in the book, which I must admit hadn't occurred to me before, is just the sheer difficulty of of creating a, a national border between Wales and England. Because, I mean, obviously, to join the European Union, there's going to have to be a clear border. To have genuine independence, there's going to have to be a clear border. But you think that will be really hard. Why so hard? I think part of it is because it is so interconnected. Um, as we said, that figure at the start, that 50% of people in uh, Wales live within 25 miles of England. Uh, Denbyshire, Flintshire and Wrexham, which are the counties in the northeast of Wales, are the most commuted out of areas of the UK. More people there commute out of the area for work than anywhere else. And if you want to have a border, any kind of a border along there. It's going to be, if you think it's tough trying to sort out the Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland um, EU border, that would be nothing compared to how hard it would be to sort out uh, if there was any kind of friction along the border between England and Wales. If Wales was a member of the EU and England or the remaining UK, I should say, uh, was part of, was had a, was a similar arrangement to what it has now. So essentially it would be a hard border between the EU as a whole and England, it it would be it, the the turmoil that would create would be like putting a mountain range between the two countries. When it comes to transporting goods between those two countries, if there is not regulatory alignment and the ability to freely move goods, you have to have checks on that border. There is no feasible way that you could have any kind of hard border between England and Wales. It would ignore the lived reality of everyone who lives on on these islands. It, it, it doesn't work. And the, in the book, the point I make is the independence movement has to make all of their decisions and all of their pitches for independence with that in mind. It, it has to underpin everything. But they else. wouldn't. I mean, they, they would just say you can, surely. I mean, they, they, how can you argue for an independent Wales that doesn't have a border? You could have a, uh, essentially, I mean, the Benelux countries, even before the EU, had lots of free movement between them. Um, you could have uh, part of a negotiation could be that you say this with the divorce would be you have free movement between England and Wales. You could have almost a confederation. There's ways you could do it, but none of these ways are guaranteed. And that's the point I, to make time and again in the book is if somebody is selling you a certain vision of independent Wales, they are selling you something that is incredibly I say unlikely. I think it's just um, something that is in no way guaranteed. And that's you should bear that in mind when making your view on this issue. One of the key issues underneath all this is the idea that an independent Wales would be better governed. 
And, you know, you make the point repeatedly in the book that Wales is a bit of an afterthought for London. I think anyone living in Wales feels that, that, you know, that Wales is not taken terribly seriously by the British government and that therefore, you know, that might affect Welsh prospects and the Welsh economy and so on. But it, it, it's it's harder to say that, you know, a, a locally governed Wales would be better governed. And there is one quite good example of this, which is COVID, because during COVID, the Welsh government did use its powers to have distinct policies from England. And I know you've made a study of this. Is there any evidence that the Welsh management of COVID produced better results than the English management of COVID? The tricky thing with with that is that because Wales is older and sicker and poorer, if the Welsh government and the UK government handled the disease in exactly the same way, Wales would likely have had more deaths and uh, it would have been hit harder because of the demographics of Wales. I think it's certain that the Welsh government were more cautious. I think they tried to underpin their decisions in a more evidence-based way, but they also made some huge, huge errors that weren't made or made to the same extent in England or they made differently. Um, I think there's no guarantee that an independent Wales manages its affairs better than being in the UK. But I think it would be easier to manage your affairs better, either with independence or if the UK was reformed. And the reason I say that is Wales's money, uh, the money Wales receives, is completely based upon the spending priorities of England. So realistically, if you were looking at the UK as a whole and you said, where are the areas which need more than its fair share of money, especially in the short term, because there are huge, there are greater issues with wealth and sickness and age and demographic problems. Wales would get more and would be able to, that's how you would allocate it. Ultimately, when I, I do the budget every year, I cover the budget, which is when the Chancellor stands up in the House of Commons and says, this is how much each department is going to get. And then what I do is, is I have to work out what this means for Wales, because if he announces hundred million pounds more for education, Wales will get a proportion of what's spent in England, Wales gets. But I, so I ring the Welsh government, I say, what does this mean? And they say, we don't know yet, because they have no input into that process. They have no voice in how this money is allocated, because actually, if Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, the current Chancellor, it changes every five minutes. So by the time this comes out, it might be different. If he was to say there's going to be hundred million pounds more, I might say, right, okay, so Wales will be getting 5% of that. If he's taken that money from another pot, which is also devolved, Wales won't get any more. So the point I'm trying to make is that it is a really haphazard way to long-term plan for a country which really needs some serious long-term planning. So I think independence or reform UK would make it easier for Wales to be better governed, but there isn't a guarantee it would be better governed. Yeah, right. So let's just summarise all this. I mean, I think, you know, you've told us that, if you want independence, it's not really about money because it's likely that Wales would be poorer. It may be better governed, but you know, probably not. I mean, uh, most governments, uh, whether they're local or national, uh, perform you know to the same sort of standard. They they, they they make the same sort of mistakes and they have the same sort of successes. Although you know, clearly, what you said about Wales not getting some of the emphasis it needs and some of the priorities it needs because it's governed from London will be true. It, it's not clear how significant a difference that would make if that were corrected. So really, the force of the argument, surely, is it's, it's about, you know, kindly identity, unkindly tribalism. It's, it's about 
the national difference between the English and the Welsh, right? No, I, I, to be honest, I don't. I don't really agree with that. I think people who support Welsh independence and identity are going to support it on whatever, whatever we say, whatever the financial outlook. If you see it as the realization of the Welsh nation, you're going to support it, whatever happens. I think the only thing I would say at the moment, the only kind of conclusion I come to in the book really, is that what is happening at the moment, evidently, is not working for Wales. It is not. It is self-evidently not working. The only question is, how do you solve that? And I think at the moment, Wales, people in Wales are not able to, you you can't fix Wales's problems in Wales with the tools that we currently have. This doesn't mean that independence is the answer, but it does mean that the current form isn't working. So the only question for Wales, I think, is how you go about fixing that. And independence is part of, is a, a possible solution, but there are other ones in there. And there was a chapter in the book where, we, we do explore that. But I I think the reason that so many people have come to independence, because uh, there has been a significant increase uh, in recent years, the reason more people have come to independence is because they look at the UK, they think this isn't working, and they see the UK as such an intransigent beast of a thing that the easiest way to solve these problems is through independence. Now, that doesn't have to be the case, but that is how it's perceived. So the UK only works as long as it works for people. Most people, most people, a decreasing amount of people are identifying themselves as British. More people are identifying as Welsh or English. And the more that happens, the more the UK has to justify its existence through making the lives better for the people in it. And if it's not doing that, calls for independence and reform will only grow. But I do think if the UK was to start delivering more for Wales. And actually, I, I'm not saying it doesn't just not work for Wales. I don't think it works for England either. And that's a whole other, whole other um, point. But while that happens, I think that's where most of the calls for independence are coming from. I think most people aren't coming to Welsh independence. I mean, the vocal ones are coming to it because they're shouting Owen Glyndor's name and they're wrapping themselves in a Welsh flag. But most people who are coming to it are coming to it because through a position of utility, like, could we do things better? We could talk about rail funding for instance in wales wales has two percent of its line electrified whereas the rest of the uk has got you know i think in england it's 70 percent wales has no control over this whatsoever i mean it's very hard to tackle poverty with a terrible terrible infrastructure and wales doesn't have the ability to raise the money to improve its infrastructure significantly you know that's just kind of yeah. one example it's a good example but it's, it's, it's sort of it's, it really illustrates the dilemma because it is an historical injustice for wales that you know the, the infrastructure is is poor compared to england and that is because of exactly what you've been talking about the the british government's emphasis on england rather than wales but uh, in the event of an independent wales you know would there be the money to solve that problem probably not so even though it's an historical injustice it doesn't mean independence will solve it yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not advocating no. for an independent Wales. What, what, a point I make in, in the book is, if, if someone's selling you a vision of an independent Wales, Wales is never going to manufacture its own pharmaceuticals or build its own cars, which means you're going to import, and if you're going to import, you're going to have to export. So Wales needs a niche; it needs its thing, and I, I explore the idea of tidal power being a, a, a really an industry that could work for Wales. Wales has got a really craggy, intricate coast, which would be very conducive to creating tidal lagoons and uh, tidal power. Now, 
I don't think Wales would make a lot of money from selling that power, but the expertise of doing that at a time when the whole world is looking for ways to create green energy could essentially be a growth industry. But whoever's selling you Welsh independence needs to be coming to you, not just with generic phrases like we're going to invest in the industries of the future, which is something I hear a lot. They have to say, right, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to invest. This is how we get from having generating very little cash to producing um, enough to be able to create a decent standard of living. If somebody can make that pitch and it's credible, then I think there's a lot of people who, who will go for it. And that's what I mean. That's what the Scots are trying to do. They've. Uh, whether or not you agree with it, but they they have a I, the aim of having hydrogen production in Aberdeen. You have a financial hub in Edinburgh. You have a creative art sector in Glasgow. You have um, more tech in Dundee. They're they're putting forward a vision of how this is going to work. In Wales, there there isn't there isn't that at this point, and that's why I argue the Welsh independence side need to construct. Like you need to build the nation you want to see free. And at the moment, I don't think that pitch has been remotely close to being made. Yeah, well, it's been very, very interesting. And uh, I can see that you've so studiously avoided taking a view on this uh, in your book and in this conversation. There's actually no point whatsoever in me asking you how you You can vote. ask me if you want. Uh, well, you how me. would you vote? <laughs> um, at this point, if there was a referendum on Welsh independence, I would vote against it. I am totally open to the idea of an independent Wales if it will make things better for people in Wales. As yet, I'm unconvinced uh, that case has been made. But if somebody wants to make that case, I'd gladly listen to it. And, and, and you know, what I... What, my, my, my sort of follow-up, because uh, I didn't think you'd answer that, was, um, yeah, do you think it'll happen? I mean, the, the trend is up, but quite slowly up. But then again, these things go in spurts, and we saw quite a significant uh, move towards uh, independence in, in, in a few weeks of the Scottish campaign in 2016. Uh, you know, how do you see it working out? Wales, it, it's typically between 20% and 30%, which is actually where Scotland was just a couple of years before it <laughs> almost voted to leave. I don't, I don't actually subscribe to this view that the UK is intransigent and doesn't reform. If you actually look at the UK over the last 50, 25 years, it's been in a state of flux. I mean, devolution was a huge thing. Brexit was a huge thing. There's, there's big, big changes. And people, uh, the only thing everyone seems to agree on is that what's happening at the moment isn't very good. So things will change, things will adapt. And I think the, the devolution genie which came out during COVID isn't going to be put back in the bottle. People do realise that things can be done differently. So I think there will be changes. I'm very sceptical that there will be an independent Wales in the next 20 years. But I hope people buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they do too. And uh, many people listening to this might now do so. So, uh, look, thank you very much uh, for taking us through this issue. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a big country. I am, I am Welsh. Uh, I'm interested in it. And I, I, I hope it has some relevance to uh, other minorities around the world as they contemplate their future. So, th thanks very much indeed. Diolch <laughs>